All right, everyone, the sermon we brought to us today by our elder, Mr. Barnabas Grayson, entitled Burden of the Word from Malachi 1, verse 1. Good afternoon, everyone. Burden of the Word, Malachi 1.1. In Malachi 1, in verse 1, the burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This word burden is often also known as oracle. It's a root, the root meaning is to lift up or to bear. We look at a burden as something that is... Uh, a burden, something that is heavy, like a severe task or a difficult duty that requires some extra effort that is above and beyond normal expectation. In this case, Malachi was to lift up his voice to bear the word of the Lord to Israel. But he came along, Malachi came along at a time when the people needed it. He came along with a message that the people needed during his time. And he delivered this message in what is called a dialogical style in which uh, he taught the word of the Lord to the people by involving them in dialogue or conversation. In such a style, that means that there are bound to be many responses, many questions, some good and some bad. But in this dialogical approach, the people could be condemned by their own words, made to see by their own voice. Uh, the message that uh, Malachi was uh, trying to get across to them. Now, it was at this time that Malachi was speaking to a rebellious people. That he was speaking to a defiant people. So his message in that sense would be something that is heavy to bear, heavy to lift up the voice toward. Now there are several things that we can glean from this book of Malachi. We know that it is mainly known for its verses on tithing, on sacrificial rites, and remembering the law of Moses. So it can be a lengthy study with all sorts of companion details that can be from other books of the Bible as we look into the history and it's bearing on the future. But for today, we're going to look at a few things that have to do with our personal attitude and our hope and our worship in walking with the Eternal, the Almighty God. In contrast to the way the world thinks, to the way the world has its attitude toward God. Now, you know that the name Malachi means my angel or my messenger. In its Hebrew form, the interpreters say it is a title rather than a personal name. But whoever Malachi is, he is a messenger of the Lord, and he has some serious things for us to hear. So, as any messenger would, they have a message. It was for the people then, and as we read today, a message for our time today. At the time of this writing, which was around 465 B.C., it was a little after Ezra and Nehemiah, and the temple had been built. And it was standing there for all the people to behold. Now, the temple was a uh, symbol of the people's hope. 
and a symbol of their faith. It was ready for Christ's return, for the Messiah's return. But during this waiting period, there were struggles ongoing. People were going through all sorts of uh, troubles with their, with their neighbors, the nations around them. But through all of this, the people and the priests were neglecting the needs of the temple. And in so doing, were dishonoring the eternal. In chapter 1, again, there were some questions that wearied the Lord. And in a lot of ways, we may identify with how uh, the eternal must have felt when he heard these questions, these questions that the people had uh, on their minds. And it's sometimes like uh, when someone asks a question and we say, I can't believe uh, you would ask that. But in verse 1, the burden of the eternal, of, of the Lord, to Israel by Malachi. Verse 2, he says, I have loved you, yet you say, wherein have you loved us? Wherein have you loved us? This is like saying to God in question, is that so? Implying, you haven't loved us. But then the reply is, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob? So if they would just think back, they would see proof of God's love for them in the way that he chose Jacob to receive uh, the, the bigger blessings. But that question is like, I can't believe you would ask something like that. Wherein have you loved us? They asked. And verse 3 says, I hated Esau. And laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and, re and build the desolate places, as says the Lord of hosts. They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. But your eyes shall, uh, shall see. And ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So God chose Israel to be the model of the nation, to bring the glory of God to all nations, and to be holy in all specs, all aspects of life. Just as a father is holy, he wanted his children to be holy. In verse 6, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. O priests that despise my name. And you say, well, wherein have we despised your name? Verse 7. You offer polluted bread upon my altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. So they were despising what the Lord had to offer on his table. The things that he promised, the things that he gives, and his special mercy and his love toward uh, his people. You know, bread is, is a food. It's, it's, you know, we can compare it to the word of, of God. And they were giving this polluted bread with, uh, that was tainted in quality and, and tainted in truthful integrity. And that action was just like saying... Uh, 
we, uh, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Verse 8, and if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Now, you wouldn't do that stuff to some dignitary or some important person or a king or some ruler that might be over. You want to give him the best of what you have. And here they were giving, uh, offering things to God that were of a lesser degree of quality. But now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hands. So he was turning down their offerings uh, that, because they were dishonoring him. <clears throat> for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. So that was the intention. That's the intention of the Almighty God to make his glory known. And Israel was to magnify that glory among the nations. To magnify the eternal's reputation. To magnify his honor. His name among the nations. But in verse 12 it says, But you have profaned it, in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted. And the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. So they were at this time feeling, you know, ungracious toward what the Lord had blessed them with. Even in their struggles, even in the, uh, their lack of uh, hope, God was still with them. But yet they did not appreciate or count the blessings that they already had. You, also, you said also in verse 13, behold what a weariness it, is it. And you have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I ex accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? So they quit giving their best. They were slacking up. But curse, ver verse 14, but curse be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifice unto the Lord, a corrupt thing. He had better things to offer, but instead he offered that which was of least quality. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So all of these questions here in chapter 1 were defiant ones. They were in mockery of the eternal God our Father. How have you loved us, they asked. How have we despised your name or your honor? How have we polluted your altar? And there were other questions such as that asked in some of these other chapters. So we see them offering and bringing diseased and blemished animals to the altar, seriously displeasing to the Lord. So worship was becoming more or less a mockery toward God. So he called for just closing the doors of the temple and putting out the altar fires. Because they, were, they weren't uh, offering their best. And also the people 
being surrounded by the heathen nations. The people were being absorbed into idolatry and into the wickedness of those surrounding people. So Malachi came and he uh, brought out charges of sin among the people because they were into things like uh, witchcraft and adultery and lying and oppression. And there were charges of frauds and, and scams where brothers dealt treacherously with each other, as we'll see in chapter 2. So consequently, there was a mood of distrust, a mood of suspicion that followed among the uh, people to ask defiant questions, not really in search of the truth, but just to mock and to find blame. So their faithless degenerating into cynicism toward God's providence. So there was a spiritual letdown, a letdown that can happen to anyone when, when, it, may, when it seems that God is far off, that he doesn't care. So their worship began to wane. Such a state can be felt sometimes even in our own lives from time to time. Yet we read that there was a faithful remnant who saw the way things were going and still spoke of the Lord's righteousness. And that is one of the reasons that we come together, to hear about the hope, to be inspired, and to keep on in the faith, and to carry on this message of Malachi. In Malachi 3, verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And that's one of the opportunities that we have when we gather, is that we can speak often to one another, offering our views of, of the hope and the inspiration and what we're in, uh, that we're in all this together, striving for the same thing. And the Lord hearkened, and he heard it. So the Lord listens. He knows. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the eternal and that thought upon his name. So just as the Lord would hear us saying good things, he would also hear us saying negative things and bad things. And like our time today, the people of Malachi's time, were in a waiting period. And some were losing touch with the eternal and becoming cynical of his love and purpose. Why must we wait? Why must we struggle at the same time? We know what it's like to wait in a line. We know what it's like to uh, have to wait for those ahead of us or wait for something to come and it be delayed. And your attitude changes. You become a little impatient, maybe even uh, angry and hostile toward those in front of you. The light is green. Why won't that car in front of me move? But verse 6 of Malachi 3, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So the message of Malachi is to show us the way back, to show people the way back, as he did in this time in which he is speaking. I change not, he said, so the eternal is still merciful. His mercy endures forever. And he puts up with many things out of his loving kindness toward his people. And this love and mercy he has will never change or else we would all be burned 
to a crisp. We would all be consumed. And his hope and patience is toward all that there be a change of heart toward doing good and not evil. In verse 7, even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, well, wherein shall we return? So we see <clears throat> these questions. I have loved, uh, where the eternal said, I have loved you. But the reaction of the people, well, how have you loved us? An expression that implies their cynicism, as though they were saying, well, is that so? But God chose to love his people, and that their election was for his service, so that his message could be heard by all people to, uh, to submit to his rule. As we know, God's people, just as in our own life, we have ups and downs. Yet God keeps his love and his mercy open to them calling on them to confess and to repent of their transgression, knowing that they're not alone in these struggles and in, their, in this waiting period that we sometimes think that we're in. We think about trials that they're just meant to destroy us, but trials are really meant to get rid of the dross, to show proof of his love in that he wants to correct and show us the way. A lot of times our trials are due to our own foolishness, to our own attitude, to our own way of doing. Yet God as a loving parent, is patient, he's there to help one through when they call upon him. End um, of verse 7 of Malachi 3, but you said, wherein shall we return? Well, we know that it begins with knowing that God exists that he does have a salvation plan and a purpose for every one of us, for all of mankind. And it begins with repentance from sin, the transgression of God's law. And one of the sins uh, that we uh, should seek to avoid, of course, is stealing, among the other commandments. In verse 8, it says, will a man rub, rob God? I guess you could rub God the wrong way. <clears throat> Yet you have robbed me. But you say, uh, wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You were cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Tithing is showing our personal faith toward God, toward his purpose. He gives us the air we breathe. He gives us all the conditions for human survival on this planet. But there is also a need for spiritual survival. Now, the temple at that time stood as a symbol of the people's faith and that God was dwelling among them and that from the temple would come his instruction and there would be worship. Tithing is one way to show worship and that God does exist in your life. But 
We can't look at tithing as, you know, as installment payments to reserve a space for us in the kingdom of God. Tithing, that there may be meat in, his, uh, in the storehouse, and you know that these tithes were for the Levites, that they were for the, the, the poor, the orphans, the widows, that they were there to do good for those and for the upkeep of the temple when it was here. In Luke 11, verse 34, beginning verse 34, it says the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is single, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is evil, your body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in you be not darkness. If your whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright, as, as when the bright shining of a candle does give the light. So it's what's in the heart and in the mind that counts. And that light comes from Jesus Christ through his word, through our prayer, through our Bible study, through our fellowship with one another. In verse 37, he, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to eat. I suppose, well, let me go to verse 8. And when the Pharisees saw it, now, the Pharisees were always looking for something to find wrong in Christ and his actions. They, when they saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, I'm not sure what all that washing involved. You know, when we, before we have dinner or lunch, we wash our hands, squirt stuff on it, you know. Uh, maybe they had to go through a big bathing process before they ate. Go get cleaned up before you eat. But they were marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, now, now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter. But your inward part is full of ravening, or ravening and wickedness. You fools did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also. But rather give alms of such things as you have. And behold, all things are clean unto you. But one to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and Passover judgment and the love of God. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. So tithing is one thing, but living up to the expectations of the word of God is, has a lot of bearing on our attitude toward worship of God. And we see... <clears throat> The expression, prove me now herewith. Want to know God exists? And that's one way to see that God can bless. He may not give you riches. He may not give you Cadillac or Rolls Royce. He might, may not make you a jet setter that travels all over the world. But he blesses in different ways. And sometimes you have to look back on your life and count those blessings. Not only on your past life, but even today. Malachi 3, verse 12. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Because they were giving to the purpose of God. Your, but your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. 
Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, that tempt God are even delivered. And sometimes that might be our attitude. We see all the wickedness going in the world without any uh, justice or any uh, correction. And we think that, well, God just favors the wicked more than we who are struggling to obey his ordinances, to follow his uh, commandments and his righteousness. Verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one another, I read that a while ago, and the Lord hearkened, he heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So, this book of remembrance before the Lord is about those who think upon his name, who have his honor in their heart, and how we speak, and how we act, and how we conduct ourselves. In verse 17, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. So there is, in spite of the struggles and pains that we suffer, the doubts that we might have in this world, we see that we are going to be his jewels. That he is making up uh, a life that is ahead for us. A promise of eternal life. And he will spare us as a man spares his own son or his child that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. So in this day and age, too, there's a question that sometimes people ask, well, where is God? Where is his judgment and justice in regard to all these bad things that are happening, the, the crime and the shootings that we hear about, the evil that goes on in the world before us? In Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the word, the Lord with your words. And you say, well, wherein have we wearied him? Well, when you say everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of judgment? So the people were complaining that the eternal was showing favoritism to, to sinners who were getting away with things. Why doesn't God do something instead of nothing about those? Is he not concerned with judgment and justice on the earth? So during that time, as in our time today, there was wickedness, there was injustice, there was oppression ongoing. And even the poor were charged with excessive interest rates and they faced foreclosure if they did not make their payments. In Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning verse 1, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat. And they were saying, you know, in order for us to eat, for my family to eat, we must get grain for them. So these poor were being 
exploited. Some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, houses that we might buy corn, buy the corn because of the dearth. We're mortgaging things because of the famine. There were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards. So they, you know, mortgage your uh, lands, they mortgage your vineyards in order to borrow money in order to pay the taxes. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. The uh, NIV, the New International Version, verse 5, says, says it like this. Although we are the, of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been, been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So these were some of the things that were going on that had caused the people to ask, well, where is God? The poor were being exploited by those out to enrich themselves. Now, maybe it's just me, but one of the things that I complain about today is gas prices. You know, we got used to prices going up, and then we got used to the high price, and so when it comes down, we think we're getting a bargain. But we're, you know, our nation, we're, we're big consumers of, uh, of gas, and the demand for fuel is one of the, is one of the factors that cause the price to rise. But I can't help but feel exploited when I can't meet the price I want to pay. If you've ever tried to do this, you know, let's say you want to, to get uh, $35 worth of gas and you try to, uh, you know, match it right up. It's kind of hard to match it right up, so it'll go over one-tenth, uh, maybe a cent. And you say, well, I'll, I'll go up to 30, uh, $36, you know. And so you squeeze out a little more. It's like they're squeezing every penny they can out of you. I don't understand it, but I guess if you want to, you can go inside and pay for the amount that you want, and it'll stop at that price. But I have this little card that makes it, you know, easier. You, know, you just push it in, and, and, uh, and that way they can, you know, squeeze every bit out of you. I sometimes try to get it up to an odd number, like thirty-four ninety-nine. <laughs> sometimes I'm, I hit it right on, but sometimes I don't. But I, I can't help but feel that they, they, they've got this to where they'll squeeze every little bit out of you. What about the interest rates on credit cards? Really outlandish. And you know, the way uh, the scriptures are reading, that you know, we can't save for our family. We can't save for our, our sons and daughters because everything we have is in hock. But it's one of those things that we allow because of materialism in our society and the pressures of merchants to buy their stuff and we covet things. We worship the work of uh, men's hands and it's hard to stay out of the stores. But here Malachi is having a dialogue with these people during his time, trying to get them to see 
that they must not give up on the eternal God and the hope for justice. That the evil that's going on is headed for a day of reckoning. So Malachi responds, telling them that that, that, that there is a day of judgment that is approaching, but that it would come in the great and terrible day of the Lord, but not before he sends a messenger to prepare the way and warn of pending judgment. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly, that is, unexpectedly, come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come. And, you know, this is the expected Messiah. They know a new Messiah was supposed to come, saith the Lord of hosts. So we see here a prophecy, and some say it, it was fulfilled in the appearing of John the Baptist, who would uh, prepare the way before Christ calling, by calling men to repentance. But that message was then passed on to the disciples, and it's still being proclaimed by those Christ called to go into the world, saying that this good news will be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So preparation... Preparing the way uh, with a messenger is a custom that is related to kings who travel to distant parts. They send someone ahead to make arrangements, to clear out the obstacles and make sure that uh, the way is safe to travel. Verse 2, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. You know, fire does two things. It uh, can destroy and it can refine or purify. And fire in the Old Testament was used as a metaphor that described the eternal, like the burning bush, like the pillar of fire, and as a devouring fire, a jealous God. Who may abide the day of his coming? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And it's like a launderer's soap. It's like a harsh detergent, like maybe bleach or some sort of thing like uh, uh, that lava soap. I probably related this story a long time ago, but when I was a, a kid, I really liked being around football players. I would go up there to watch them practice. And I was, I think, about third grade. And the coach came over to me and he said, uh, we need some soap for the, uh, for the boys. And I was really proud to help out, so he gave me a few cents to go to the store just about half a block away, so I, Jones Grocery. So I went and, and I thought, well, I've been seeing this commercial about lava. <laughs> and uh, so I bought three bars of lava. Well, I was really proud, done something for the boys, all sweaty and dirty. They, they came to the uh, locker room, and uh, I could hear their voices from the inside of the locker room. <laughs> Who got this lava soap? <laughs> I just slinked a little bit and sort of walked away. But I bet they got clean. <laughs> but who may abide the day of his coming? Now, 
to, uh, at that time, uh, many had a superficial view of the day of the Lord. They saw it as him returning to the temple with all glory, uh, as, as in a gala event. And they looked at it as maybe a painless uh, transition into a bright future with all blessings. But here Malachi implies that few would be able to endure that day. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is close at hand. That's the message Malachi was getting across also. And, he, and Joel says it's a day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there has not been ever the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devours before, before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yes, and nothing shall escape them. I won't read the rest of this, but we see that Christ is coming to clean things up. He's coming in a day of wrath and judgment, a day of clouds and gloominess. But also with it is the promise that he will even prepare the sinner's heart to make it right. To make them his temple, as he has done for us who are his temple. But will we be prepared when he appears? either at the end of the tribulation or at the resurrection, will we, will we be ready? So we still have to ready ourselves now. We have to prepare ourselves. Life is not over. There are ups and downs, but we must not weary God with our doubts, with our um, questions that we shouldn't even ask because judgment is now on the house of God and we are being judged. I have here Malachi 3, 3 through 5, but um, I'm going to skip that part and go to Malachi 2. Sometimes people say, how I live is nobody's business but my own. You live your life, I'll live mine. But if such statements are taken to mean that their actions have no effect on uh, others but themselves, then they could be mistaken because we are to remember that we either strengthen or weaken the entire body, the brotherhood or the fellowship by what we say or how we act or what we do. Now just because I might like uh, tennis doesn't mean you know you have to like it but that's no big deal. But we all have to be aware that there is a, a time and a place for tennis. If I came to church with a racket and say, let's go out and play some tennis in the parking lot, you know, that wouldn't be the time to do that. So by what we do, what we say, how we act, has an effect on others. And <clears throat> Malachi was confronting such behavior because the people were destroying the bonds that tied them together as a nation. In our age today, it is a thinking of people to do what you want, believe the way you want, attend the church of your choice every Sunday, or, or don't go. 
So we as a nation are religiously, philosophically, politically, and so on, are divided. Yet Malachi says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So why do we, why do we scam and, and defraud each other? As we see sometimes on news reports of, you know, uh, people uh, scamming one another, defrauding one another. <clears throat> and, you know, people want to get rich through that means. And it's as though, as one writer put it, it's the survival of the slickest. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. Now, th though this is addressed to Judah, this speaks of how disunity can affect any nation. So in the final analysis, each one is accountable for the way in which they choose to live. But the people of God should strive to live in unity, in which, you know, at this time we know there are varying beliefs and denominations. Uh, Psalm 133. I usually try to end the sermon along this time, but uh, I may probably go over about 50 minutes or so. <laughs> Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's kind of hard to come to church when you feel like someone is going to question you or someone is going to uh, be disagreeable with you when there is no unity. Because unity is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Imagine Aaron when he was anointed <laughs> and it went top of his head, down his beard, down to his uh, skirts of his garment. That was a lot of oil. As the day of Hermon, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, blessings, even life forevermore. So what destroys the unity, the eternal desires, is obvious today in many people. Uh, and for uh, lack of time, uh, the men of Judah, they were taking wives from idolatrous and pagan neighbors and divorcing their wives. These men were falling for the, the younger and the beautiful women and were being influenced by their uh, pagan beliefs. In Malachi 2, verse 13, This have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore or receives it with goodwill at your hand. Some take this to mean the tears of the divorced wives crying out. Some also the weeping of the men who had been denounced for their divor divorcing their wives. Yet you say, wherefore? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. So they were, they were being sneaky. They were conniving. They were uh, conniving adulterers. Yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant? And did not he make one? Uh, therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So the implication here is that these men were older, and so were their wives. 
And so the men began to look outside the walls of their marriage for the younger a woman. Now, verse 16, for the Lord, the God of Israel, said that he hates putting away. And we rephrase this, you know, as him saying, I hate divorce. For one covers violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And that's what we need to do. Take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Now, I hate divorce, God said, but he allowed it because of the hardness of a man's heart. And Malachi had the burden of the word to bear to the people because it was such a heavy situation. We all slip up, but God is forgiving toward those willing to change and heed the oracle, the word of the, the Lord. Proverbs 6. So we are to be careful in our attitudes. We are to watch that we don't get wrapped in, up in the way of a godless attitude. We just need to stop sinning, going the wrong way, going in and out, in, out of relationships like many do in these days and like as in the days of Noah. Now in verse 16, these things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. And we heard uh, where the haughty in, in, the in, in the previous sermon by Art, that the haughty shall be bowed down. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. We might as well think of those who pull the trigger on and gun down people. And a heart that divides wicked imaginations. Let's see how I can make a bomb. Let's see how I can plant some sort of uh, a bacteria or something to uh, uh, harm somebody. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. You know, for lack of self-discipline, uh, they run toward things that aren't good. A false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among the brethren, or some of those things that the Lord does hate. He hates divorce, but then look at all these other things. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. So he says, my son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart and tie them about your neck. When you go, it shall lead you. When you sleep, it shall keep you. And when you awake, it shall talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And that's how we're to get through this, this age in which we find ourselves waiting for the kingdom to come. So what Malachi brings to us is a message that we... Do not speak irreverently or carelessly of the eternal and his providence. And that we should seek his ways and not our own. And that everything belongs to him. And that we should honor him. That we should also strive for unity. And that in our waiting period for the return of Christ, that we not give up hope and think that sin will not be judged. And that God is calling for repentance. And that God, God's will that God will and warn of pending judgment. Malachi 4. Behold the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So no matter who you are. As long as you desire to change and follow God and have accepted him into your life, 
he will love and guide you. Christ is our Redeemer. Our past sins are forgiven, they're forgotten. And any we do commit, Christ is our advocate and our atonement. He is our light, the light that is in us, in his temple. So with that in mind, we can see how Christ came so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. By living in the light of his word, there is joy. But the world wants to take that joy from us through doubts, through temptations, false ways. But we see that there are wonderful promises of a head, that are ahead. The kingdom of God is coming, and we are his workmanship toward that, toward that end. Verse 3, ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In a way, you can kind of see that prophecy come to pass because a lot of people are going to Ancestry.com to look, you know, to see uh, where they come from. But in the meantime, as a song that we sang at the beginning, don't be discouraged, take your burdens to the Lord. He's our friend and the messenger of God and of good things to come. So love your children, enjoy your family, love your spouse, love the brethren, love the Lord, love his word, and you'll be prepared.